Wolovinaka, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suiswiki. Coming up. It's one of the weaker ones in recent memory. Typhoon Bolivan passes northern Marianas without damage. Also, one of the reasons why Christianity has done so well in our region is because it talks about the importance of family and community. How much are you willing to pay for a miracle of religious movements in Fiji sparks public debate? And later, award-winning Kiwi Pacifica theatre show Upu returns. Typhoon Bolivan had just missed hitting any of the northern Mariana Islands last night, instead passing between Rota and Tinian. One person in Saipan has described it as a banana typhoon, meaning only banana trees were taken out by the high winds. Caleb Fotheringham has more. Bolivan was upgraded to a Category 1 typhoon with sustained wind speeds of 130 kilometres per hour just before passing the northern Mariana Islands. The strongest effects were felt at around 10pm on Tuesday. Saipan Airport recorded wind speeds of just over 90 kilometres per hour. 55 millimetres of rain was recorded over 12 hours and the maximum wave height was close to 7 metres. With no island taking a direct hit from the eye wall, Paul Stanko, senior meteorologist at the US National Weather Service in Guam, says it was close to being the best case scenario. For having been hit by a tropical cyclone, it it wasn't that bad, just because it didn't start really intensifying until after it got away from the Marianas. It's one of the weaker ones in recent memory. The typhoon got closest to Rota. The island's mayor, Aubrey Hockel, says the winds were strong but people were prepared. She expects Rota to be back to normal, including having power restored in a couple of days. Based on preliminary assessments, there are no major damages to our facilities and as well as to private property. RNZ Pacific CNMI correspondent Mark Rabago, who spent the night in Saipan, called Bolaven a banana typhoon, meaning only banana trees were blown over. But the typhoon did bring strong winds. There's trees like moving in different directions because of the storm. It's quite eerie, it's quite quiet. The night was very dark, very starless night. And you could just hear nature at its strength, trying to, you know, show its might. Mr. Rabago says people were feeling worried before Bolaven entered the CNMI because of past large typhoons. Government messages ask people to look after their mental health. So we're really happy, we're really fortunate that we dodged this one. As it moves away from the CNMI, Bolaven has now strengthened to a Category 3 typhoon. It is heading into open waters. Refugee Action Coalition says refugees abandoned by Australia in Papua New Guinea are experiencing another round of distress. Ian Rintoul says refugees in Port Moresby haven't been paid their food allowance on top of being threatened with eviction and no access to health services. Mr Rintoul told Lydia Laws there's a real risk. Vulnerable refugees will be booted on the streets with no support. People haven't been paid their uh, their food or, or um, income allowances. So it looks like the same. We've had this situation periodically over the 
the last uh, you know the last few months. Uh, but Namura is a company that is responsible for you know paying the food allowances and their and their income allowances, and that just you know hasn't happened this week. So there's another round of uh, distress, uh, particularly coming on top of the the threats over the last uh, few weeks, uh, threats of eviction, and the fact that there things like electricity and gas and uh, Wi-Fi have been progressively being cut off in their in their their accommodation. So nothing's nothing's resolved. It does the, the secret deal between the Australian government and the PNG government. You know, it does look like the money the money has run out, and um, it's the, the squeeze is being put on the you know the people who are most vulnerable. Can you tell me more about that deal and why you are saying that it looks like the money has run out? Do you have any more indication as to what's happening and why? Uh, well, we don't know the terms of the secret deal. That's one of the you know one of the problems that we there have been now as a result of the exposés of the the fact that uh, services have been cut off and that uh, invoices uh, from uh, refugee service providers have not been paid. Uh, the chief migration officer in, in PNG actually came out and said that uh, the Australian government has not been uh, providing the money uh, un- under the agreement. Um, and uh, as since last night, the Australian government actually admitted that the last payment it made you know was in uh, in July 2022 uh, so that's more than a year ago before the Australian government had topped up uh, you know any uh, any money according to uh, well on their on their own admission now um, and that was that went rather further than what we've been able to get information previously uh, but it's it's very obvious that the uh, the, the money has run out uh, because uh, there is now you've got uh, service providers that are owed you know millions of dollars uh, the uh, medical service provider PIH in uh, Port Moresby has told the guys that uh, they will they are now cutting services and they expect uh, they may even cut uh, t- total services particularly mental health services look like they're being cut uh, totally you know by the you know by the end of the year that they're they're owed you know millions of dollars what is a realistic outcome that could immediately alleviate pressure for the providers and also those stranded uh, well, the immediate thing that could be done is for the Australian government to bring them to uh, Australia. Uh, we know that that could be done. It could be done overnight. Uh, there's only 62 people left in, in you know, in PNG. Uh, it wouldn't be a big issue at all for the Australian government uh, to decide to bring them back to Australia. Pa- Papua New Guinea now is actually threatening to terminate the uh, their humanitarian program, as they call it. What would happen then to the refugees? Do they not have rights to certain support and measures? No, they've got no rights at all. Uh, I mean, it's an extraordinary situation. It's very, very akin to kind of official people tra- trafficking, in, in my opinion. The fact that you can have people who have been determined to be refugees that have been owed international protection, and yet the Australian and, and uh, Papua New Guinea can simply decide, you know, where they're going to be, where they're going to be shoved to, uh, whether they've got, they've got uh, at the moment they've got no right to to res- reside in Papua New Guinea. That's determined totally. Where that, would they be shoved to? I mean, if if nothing happens here, if Australia doesn't bring them to Australia or doesn't pay up, what would happen? Uh, they'd be shoved under the street. Uh, I think that's what uh, you've got refugees now in in Port Moresby who live with their bags bags packed in, in case they are 
um, you know, suddenly, you know, suddenly evicted. There's already, you know, one guy who's living in a car in, uh, you know, in Port Moresby. Uh, so that's been the problem right from the beginning. Can you just explain how severe the mental distress is? I mean, I've heard from someone else of one person who can't even do anything themselves, can't even make phone calls and is just lying yeah. down all day. So can you just explain your understanding of the severity of their health? It's difficult to describe. It's, it's distressing uh, to describe. But there's more than one person that's got, you know, with you know the withdrawal syndrome that we've seen <clears throat> in other detention centres run by Australia, and particularly from Nauru, which resulted in many people, including children, being brought uh, from Nauru to uh, you know to Australia because they suffered that uh, withdrawal syndrome. And, what is and withdrawal syndrome? It's it's the like the person you described, people who won't come out of their room, who won't uh, who won't eat, who are you know incapable of um, you know making making phone calls or answering phone calls uh, sensibly, you know sensibly, uh, who simply withdraw from you know engaging with. You know, with anybody, uh, there's more than one of those people in Papua New Guinea who don't who don't come out of their rooms, who rely on other people in their uh, housing blocks to uh, to 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 get their food, uh, to bring them the food. Um, for you know, for example, uh, you've got other people with very you know distressing. This uh, one guy who was uh, six months in you know in PIH, the uh, the, the hospital I mentioned before, uh, they were they were then. Um, Discharged uh, from the you know from the hospital, uh, but within you know a few days you had the the same problems of uh, you know people you know talking you know talking gibberish, uh, looking like they were you know kind of hallucinating and able to engage with people. You've mentioned now that these health services and mental health services will be pulled away, plucked away from these people. Yeah, that's 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 right. I mean, there's already been uh, there already already been problems with that. The level of uh, of which PIH PIH has been willing to service the the refugees. It seems because you know those the, the funds have yeah you know, have dried up and they've not been willing to actually provide the services that they had you know in the you know in the past. The offshore detention, the use of Nauru and Papua New Guinea was all always a you know a convenience for a, a very well developed government you know to push. Onto uh, countries that were compliant because uh, the Australian government effectively you know, bribed them. The only alternative is to, to end the offshore detention arrangements and to bring the people in Papua New Guinea to Australia, where they can get the medical medical services, where they can have have a uh, end end the uncertainty that surrounds their situation in Papua New Guinea, where they where they can stay where, uh, safe and secure. And if they want to go to a third country from Australia, they they can. But it's quite clear that they've got no secure future in Papua New Guinea. In a statement, an Australia Department of Home Affairs spokesperson says PNG took over the exclusive independent management of individuals remaining in PNG in December 2021. Australia paid PNG a one-off finite funding with all payments made to PNG in the 2021-2022 to financial year. Over the last few months, there's been much public debate on Fiji's coconut wireless concerning religion. The extradition of five members from the Grace Road Church, a Korean denomination accused of being a violent cult, sparked debates about the freedom of religion in Fiji. There's also been recent backlash involving an American preacher. 
Lily Jawa, who's allegedly collecting money from Fijians in return for performing miracles. Fiji's government has had to comment on both controversies. Finalfono spoke with Fijian professor Georgi Rarulo from the University of Sydney about spirituality in Fiji and why these events have gained public attention. Recently, Fiji's Deputy Prime Minister Manoa Kamikamida was questioned about what Fiji police were going to do about about a certain American preacher who is allegedly collecting money from people in return for performing miracles. You also have the Korean Grace Road Church. It's been called a violent cult. And you, you have this public backlash. Do you think there's a conversation in Fiji about freedom of religion? Yeah, I think people are more willing now to have critical conversations about these particular topic areas. In the past, people would take on church and faith as part of what they did in family and community. As specific people, religion, spirituality, faith have been a big part of our cultural practices and expression. What's interesting now is that young people who are part of such faith communities are having those critical conversations. This is then also leading to critical conversations with other people in the family about the role of spirituality and faith and whether those particular practices reflect our traditional views of spirituality and faith. So I think that's what's happening at the moment is there are are those critical conversations that are creating more of a nuanced understanding of the role of church uh, and faith and how that is being played out across the community. Could you describe how important religion is to the Itauke uh, or how influential it is in the Itauke community? Christianity for Itauke has always been part and parcel of what we do as a community, as a family. People will go to church because it's what you do as a family. Young people will go along because it's part of what you do. I think it's been part of who we are as a a community and you see that played out in different realms of our lives, not just in the private but also in the professional. And I think that one of the reasons why Christianity has done so well in our region is because it talks about the importance of family and community and that resonates with our traditional ways of knowing and doing, being and becoming. So I think that's why Faith has played a big part in a lot of Indigenous-specific cultures and now current practices across the community. What about in terms of politics? Um, We've seen, for example, the evangelical churches becoming more and more influential in politics across the Pacific Islands. Definitely, yes. I think that we're seeing more of an influence from the evangelical Christian church There's been more of the conservative views and values that have come from such movements. And I think there have been various pros and cons. There's different impacts as a result of having such politics and such views permeate uh, our, our politics. The interesting things that are coming through is around whether people are given the flexibility and freedom to have the choice to have their own faith and, and expressions outside of the norm of the evangelical perspectives. And I know that Fiji is quite a diverse population, ethnically and spiritually. You've got the Indo-Fijian population that will also practice diverse faiths. And so it's important that if we are going to be a multicultural community with multi-faiths and multi-perspectives, that they need to be included as well, not just one particular way of looking at things. 
Do you think this is intimidating, or or this kind of causes problems for society? When individuals who already feel like they're outsiders sit within a society that say that there's only one way of doing things in life, you continue to create levels of exclusion and isolation. Inclusive societies provide scope for diverse perspectives, views, values, practices, ways of doing things to be meaningfully included in different spaces and places. By saying that there is only one religion or one faith, then it does promote exclusion. So we do need to be mindful about creating policies and systems and structures in society uh, that privilege one particular way of doing something over something else. And so as a result of that, we need to be more mindful and intentional, intentional about our approach to diversity. The positive influences of the church because a lot of Pacific Islanders uh, talk about how it's, uh, and you touched on this before, how it's played an integral part of the community, but it's also played a part in the development of states. Is that correct? The church has played a big part in creating what we, we, we call the welfare states or the response to social and welfare needs in our society. And I think you, you can't negate or you can't uh, discount uh, such civil society movements from places like the church and other religious bodies. Uh, so definitely they, they, they continue to, to play a big part in our societies across the islands. It's just important, though, that we need to ensure that the intention behind those areas of development is still inclusive of specific Indigenous views and values. When development occurs, generally we think of development from a Western point of view, um, and I think that that could be detrimental to our development as Pacific Indigenous people when we are implementing development strategies and structures that they are inclusive of diverse perspectives, including our Indigenous perspectives and how we do what we do across the Pacific. Following critical acclaim as a major new production for Silo Theatre in the 2020 Auckland International Arts Festival and a sellout season in Wellington at the Kiamo Arts Festival in June 2021, the groundbreaking bus figure theatre show, Upu, returns and is being performed around New Zealand. Upu celebrates bus figure writers and poets, one of them being award-winning Fijian poet Darren Kamali, who joins me on Pacific Waves. Bula Darren, tell me more about Upu. I understand you're one of the 28 poets that's being featured. Yes, uh, Upu is uh, featuring two of my works from my uh, Ulumati project, which is the uh, Sacredness of Human Hair. It's a Fijian legacy project, so um, they've chosen two of my poems from the uh, collection to feature in the show. And I think this is probably the second or third season of it um, on tour at the moment, so it's, it's awesome to have my poems in those uh, shows. Yeah, this isn't the first time that your poems have been used in the production now, is it? I know, yeah. It's been uh, a couple of times now, I guess, uh, since they started. Probably, we did they start 2019 or something like that, I think. And uh, yeah, it's been uh, yeah, it's been featuring in their show, which is great. Cool. And what's different this time around? Um, I, I don't know. It's probably the, the cast, depending on the cast of the Upu show and... Um, um, depending on how they deliver the poems, the poems are still the same, still stagnant on the paper. But uh, yeah, they really do bring it to life when they uh, bring their shows uh, 
the town. Yeah. Cool. Okay, just moving away from the show for a bit. I mean, you dedicate your life to the creative arts. Gosh, you're an award-winning poet and writer. I mean, how did you get into poetry? Was it something you always wanted to do growing up in Fiji? Uh, not really. Growing up in Fiji, we never really did uh, write poetry. or Probably did something at school, but I wasn't as sort of uh, interested in poetry uh, in Fiji. So 17, when I came to New Zealand, I was 17, and I sort of poetry found me on the streets of Auckland when I started busking in uh, 1998. So I've been doing it for about 25 years now, yeah. Cool. And so from your experience, how was poetry and performance a tool for positive social change? Um, yeah, this uh, sort of, it actually helped me. Just like I said, I started uh, busking on the streets. I started a community uh, course under the TOPS uh, training opportunity programs for, I think it was WINS at the time. So they had this uh, thing for community and social work, uh, but the, uh, we had to go undergo performance and um, performance art and art therapy, So which pretty much meant to, to write poems and uh, also do some art. And it was part of uh, a therapy group and then also went out into the streets and, and shared that with the, uh, on the, on, on the streets of the CBD in Auckland and also with the schools. And, and that's how I slowly started developing my poetry. And uh, it actually developed into more music as well. So I recorded my first album in 2000, uh, all written in, in poetry form and rearranged and composed into music. Uh, the music was done by Lee Baker. And uh, yeah, I done my first album in 2000 and then my second album in uh, 2005. And that was supported by created New Zealand and then and I just kept writing yeah what do you love most about writing um I just love uh, telling my stories especially coming from the islands telling the stories about the islands and the city my experiences and also the old and the new trying to combine uh, contemporary and, and heritage art forms together especially with the language and culture and uh, yeah trying to be more not just Fijian but more pan pacific in my approach to in my writings and uh, and the way I deliver my performances and stuff like that, as well as the multidisciplinary arts that I um, practice on the side, yeah. And what are the challenges that you've encountered as a poet? Um, I would say, yeah, sometimes it was uh, it wasn't easy when I first started because I'm a actually shy guy as well. Um, yeah, I had to get out of my um, garage, get out of my bedroom, and, and take it out to to the to the public as well so i started uh submitting my writings to uh, to anthologies so different anthologies and then that's how i slowly got uh um to publishing my own book and also working with the south open poets collective which i co-founded with uh, ramon narayan and uh, grace taylor back in 2008 so yeah pretty much uh yeah the last 20 years of poetry Cool. So just coming back to Upu, um, t- you've mentioned that two of your poems um, are going to be in the show. Are you able to read out one of them, please? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so this one was, I think, it was, uh, How Do I Decolonize Myself? So, um, yeah, just trying to play around with the DK as well. So colonize is uh, with a K. And people call me DK, so I just thought I'd, I'd write a poem about how do I decolonize myself? And it goes, I decolonize myself by growing my grids, 
I decolonize myself by cutting my hair. I decolonize myself by making a Uludavu wig. I decolonize myself by wearing a Uludavu wig. I decolonize myself when I wear a Mata Wulo mask. I decolonize myself when I walk through the old coral plantation. I decolonize myself when I kaila. I decolonize myself when I sweat and cry salt. I decolonize myself to the white tree out there, the salt water well. I decolonize. That's Pacific Ways for today. To listen back, head over to rndi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, so far so far.